I'm sure you're thrown off just a little bit by the background this morning for the message, right? Because we've been in Genesis for two and a half years, right? And we finished it last week, so now we're in the book of Exodus. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because we were in the book of Genesis, it's going to help us with the book of Exodus. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in just a moment. But we're going to be talking about thriving through infliction today as we begin the book of Exodus. But let me start with this illustration today. Have you ever wondered why British sailors are called limeys? Well, hundreds of years ago, modern medicine was still in its infancy. Sailors would drop like flies from scurvy on long sea voyages. But British sailors accidentally discovered a truth that was to impact the health and lives of thousands. They found that the dreaded scurvy could be stopped with the addition of limes to the sailor's diet. So if you're experiencing any of these side effects today, you might want to go get some limes. We didn't bring any for you, I apologize. But This fruit, unknown to them, contained vitamin C. Who would have thought that the difference between life and death could be a simple lime? So because British sailors sucked on limes, they became known as limeys. So life is, is delicately balanced, isn't it? It can be a negatively affected and even ended by the smallest deficiency or addition. Add an extra carbon molecule to oxygen and you get carbon dioxide, which can be fatal if too much is inhaled. This substance, like vitamin C, is unseen yet potent. What's true of the physical realm has similar parallels in the spiritual realm, you're about, I should say we, the illustration says you. We are about to make a journey with, uh, that will determine the fine balance of deliverance, direction, and dedication. The book of Exodus paints three pictures for the careful student. First is the picture of God's deliverance of the people of Israel from Egyptian bondage. The second picture will be a beautiful portrayal of God's faithful guidance of these same people through the wilderness to the promised land. The third painting will show us the glory of God as the Israelites uh, trusted his leading and dedicated a dwelling place for his holy habitation. <clears throat> so when I think about like our bodies like just missing something small, right, that can affect us, that's what's been happening to me not that long ago. I take a pill that has medication for my blood pressure combined with a water pill. And when my doctor increased the dosage of the water pill, I started having muscle pain in like my knees and hips and legs, just constant. It never stopped. And I was like, man, what is going on? And I talked to my doctor about it after six months, and he didn't have any recommendations for me. And it finally shifted from my knees and hips and legs up into my shoulders and neck and back. And I'm like, I just, wow. I mean, I couldn't sleep well because every time I couldn't lay on my shoulders like I'm used to. There's all kinds of crazy stuff going on. So I was at the chiropractor because I was dealing with an injury um, to my neck. And finally, I just said to him one day, he said, you know, because he's been doing the electroshock stuff on me. Maybe he should have been doing it up here on my brain. But um, <clears throat> he's doing it on my neck and back. And, and I finally said to him, you know, I take a blood pressure medication with a water pill. And I don't know if that's causing this. And he goes, you know, I take the uh, same kind of a medication. And my doctor prescribed potassium and magnesium. He said, just try it. So I did. I went, you know, to the pharmacy. I got some potassium. I got some magnesium. I started taking those, and I can sleep again at night. My neck and shoulders don't hurt all the time. Just because I'm old, they hurt a little bit every once in a while. 
But I was, I was changing how I was doing things because I couldn't lift things the way, you know, I couldn't raise my shoulders certain ways. I couldn't do certain things the way I used to. And so I had to make some changes in how I was living. But boy, I'm glad that just that little deficiency, once I took care of that, has helped and done an amazing thing. Now, for many years, I worked almost seven days a week because I just wanted to make sure that everything was just right for Sunday morning. And you can ask Judy this, although she's down with the children this morning. But several years ago, this was before the pandemic, I made some, a small change to my weekly schedule that transformed my work week and enabled me to make sure that every Saturday I'm able to be with Judy and at the time with, the, with Levi as well. So I just had to make one small change. It made all the difference in my work week and enabled me not to spend almost seven days a week at the church. So many of us probably have a story about how a small change made all the difference in our lives. Perhaps it was something in our diet or something in our spiritual walk, and that little change transformed our physical or spiritual health. It's important. Sometimes it's just a small thing. It doesn't have to be something major. As we begin the book of Exodus, God allowed the Israelites to thrive in Egypt. We're going to see that today. But that created some angst with the new king. And as a result, the new king tried three ways to stunt the growth of the Israelites. He was frustrated because all three plans appeared to fail. You see, the king's plan was in direct opposition to God's plan. And through this narrative today, we're going to learn that we can trust God to accomplish his plan even through hardship and suffering. Aren't you grateful for that today? That, you you know, he's going to accomplish his plan even through hardship and suffering. So let's just uh, commit this to the Lord in prayer today. Lord, we just cry out to you as people who are hungry for your word. Lord, we want to hear from you today. So speak through your uh, chipped and cracked vessel. I pray that your people would just hear your voice today. As we dive into this passage, into this book, would you guide and direct us by your spirit? Lord, would you help us to just trust you through whatever hardship or suffering we're currently experiencing because you know that your perfect plan will be accomplished. It cannot be thwarted. So we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we dive into the verses we got to get a little bit of background on the entire book, right? So the book of Exodus, the Hebrew word uh, for that, means going out or departure. Most scholars agree that Moses is the author of the book. In fact, he wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. We see the structure here a little bit, too. Scholars have divided the entire book either into two or three main point or parts, The two-part structure has Israel in Egypt and then Israel in Sinai. And then the uh, three-part structure is varied, but I kind of prefer Wearsby's breakdown that you see on the slide this morning. He says this. he, He puts all of those three points into one sentence when he says, God delivered them from bondage, but freedom should lead to obedience, and obedience results in worship to the glory of God. And so we see these three main points that we're going to be looking at as we break this uh, entire book up into these three points. We're going to be talking about redemption. The Lord delivers his people in chapters 1 through 18. Then as we go into chapters 19 to 24, we're going to be looking at the covenant. The Lord claims his people as his own. And then as we finish the last section, chapters 25 to 40, we'll be looking at worship, which is the Lord dwells with his people. 
As I was thinking about a theme for the entire book, Wearsby says this as well, God sets us free that we might serve him. In Exodus chapter 6, uh, if you just want to flip back there really quick, um, verses 6 to 8 kind of sum up those three points that Wearsby has. This is what God's word says. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give you, uh, to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So that kind of is the theme verses for all of the book of Exodus. And then I like what Douglas uh, Stewart says in his commentary. Exodus may uh, thus be divided into two main broad topics. One, deliverance of a group of people from submission to their oppressors to submission to God. They were just changing who their, um, who their king was. And two, the constitution of that group as a people of God. Put another way, Exodus is about rescue from human bondage and rescue from sin's bondage. And so that's why I've chosen for this uh, book just the theme for the entire book of rescued. And so that's what we're going to be talking about as we go through the book of Exodus. Now that we have some background uh, and we've covered all of that, let's dive in to the text for today. We're going to see two points, abundance and affliction. Abundance is in verses 1 to 7. And so look at that, if you would, in Exodus chapter 1. This is what God's word says. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that, all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. So we see this continuation of Genesis is really what it is because the first word of Exodus uh, in the Hebrew, <clears throat> the original Hebrew, is actually not translated in the NIV. So that's kind of unfortunate. But in a lot of, uh, the, the actual first word in the original Hebrew is the word and, or the Hebrew word for and. So many of the modern translations also translate it as now, but the NIV just skips over that altogether. Most scholars agree that the first um, word connects Exodus to Genesis. So, you know, Moses is writing, he finishes the book of Genesis, that scroll or whatever, and then he goes and takes out a new scroll, and he begins writing there, and he says, and, or now. It hasn't ended, right? He's not done sharing. He's going to be writing five whole books, or five scrolls, perhaps, that we've put into five books. And so this just helps us understand that Exodus could be considered the second chapter in the book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And it's not to be considered a standalone book. As we'll see, having the foundation of Genesis behind us will benefit us in the study of Exodus. Because guess what? Exodus does not answer the question of why Jacob is referred to as Israel. That's here in the very beginning. It talks about the sons of Israel went down with Jacob. Who, is this two different people? Is it the same? We already know, right? 
because of our study of Genesis. It doesn't answer the question of how the Israelites got to Egypt initially. Like, what are they doing there? But we know, don't we? Yeah, we do. It doesn't answer the question of why Joseph was already in Egypt. But we know. There are probably many other questions that we uh, might have that Exodus will not answer, but fortunately we already know the answers to those questions because we just finished finished studying the book of Genesis. Now, if you don't know the answers to the questions, I just encourage you to read Genesis for yourself, or you can listen to the messages online on our website and get caught up. There's another element that connects Genesis and Exodus that is found in this first verse. It's really a connection to Genesis. If we compare the first half of verse 1 in Exodus to Genesis chapter 46, verse 8, we find that the first 13 words are identical if we omit the parentheses in Genesis 46, 8. They're all identical. And so the first five uh, verses in Exodus go back in time just a little bit to tell us who migrated with Jacob to Egypt. And then beginning in verse 6, it jumps ahead of where Genesis left off. So there's all kinds of, like, a bunch of years, just between two verses. And there is an order to the names that are listed. So it's Leah's sons first, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Then it's Rachel's son, Benjamin. Then Rachel's handmaiden, Bilhah's sons, Dan and Naphtali. Then it's Leah's handmaiden, Zilpah's sons, Gad and Asher. And then Rachel's first son, Joseph, is listed separately because he was already in Egypt. And we're reminded again that 70 descendants went to Egypt with Jacob. We saw that back in Genesis chapter 46, verses 26 and 27. What we also see here is a fulfillment of God's command. All of Jacob's sons that were part of the generation that migrated to Egypt had died. But God had blessed the Israelites with many descendants. This blessing was evidence of God's presence and blessing on the Israelites. Even though he had been silent for many years. He still hasn't spoken yet until he speaks to Moses. So my question, a couple of questions for you. Are you grateful for God's presence in your life? They were Are you thankful for his blessings in your life? We should be. When was the last time you expressed your gratitude and thanksgiving to him? You know, just in the quietness of your heart, you can do it right now. Or maybe later today, as you just dwell on his blessing and presence with you, maybe you want to take time just to worship him and thank him. Ends in his commentary says, The Hebrew of Exodus 1-7 is even more explicit than the NIV. The Israelites became fruitful and swarmed. They increased in number and became exceedingly strong. So when I think about the word swarmed here, it brings to mind insects, which perhaps helps us to just visualize a little bit the explosive population growth of the Israelites. I don't know about you all, but this uh, summer, as we came into the summer, um, we had a population explosion of flies. Did anybody else have that? They were all over the place. They were in our house, and, you know, we got those glue strips, and, you know, you get all tangled up in those things. You can't get out, but praise the Lord, I'm still here. But then we got the, the you know, the traps that you put outside, and those things are full, and I don't know what happened, but that's the concept of what was going on here. There was explosive growth. The Israelites were just having all kinds of kids at just an incredible rate. And so I like what Hamilton says, because he says, more than normal conceived. 
So there wasn't a lot of barren women, it sounds like. Fewer than normal miscarried. That's an important thing because in the ancient Near East, that was a problem. And more than normal survived to adulthood. Again, they might have been born as a child. They might have got sick and died. But, you know, God's just blessing them. He's taking care of them. He's prospering them. He's allowing them to grow and expand. And again, that's God's blessing on the Israelites. God's blessing was a fulfillment of his command to humanity to be fruitful and multiply, as we saw in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and chapter 9, verse 7. But it was also his promise to the patriarchs of many descendants. We see all kinds of verses there for that in Genesis. The Israelites were making good use of the northern delta region, Goshen, where they were at. They were just filling it up. In fact, perhaps overflowing. But, you know, a blessing can sometimes be a curse, can it? Have you ever experienced that? Or something that's, like, good in your life that's also not so good in your life? You know, um, I've experienced it just through how young I look. Well, maybe in the past. How young I used to look. How about that? When I, especially when I was younger, you know, people had no idea that I was old as I was and that I had as many life experiences as I had or that I had the level of education that I had. And so they would marginalize my abilities and my knowledge. <clears throat> and so it was kind of a, a curse because it was frustrating because I'm like, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, I've lived life. And so that, that was a blessing and a curse. And so the Israelites came to realize that God's blessing of population growth was a blessing to them, but would bring about affliction also. And so that's our second point today is affliction. It's verses 8 to 22, but we're going to break it up just a little bit. We're going to look first at the new king in verses 8 to 10. So look at that with me if you would um, in Exodus. I hope I didn't say Genesis earlier, but I might have. (laughs) Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So what we see is this new king, and um, who uh, didn't know anything about Joseph. So when we think about that, we don't know who this uh, favor was, this new king. Some scholars believe that it could be Amos the first. Um, It may... uh, It may not be that the king didn't know about Joseph, but he didn't want to acknowledge the incredible benefits that had been provided for the Egyptians in the past. And this wouldn't be uncommon, right? As a new dynasty was coming in, there would be changes that would take place. They were going to set up their own uh, processes and procedures, and they didn't want to be bound by the previous dynasty's promises and, and practices. So it's like he comes in. So he might know about Joseph, but he's like, well, we're not doing that anymore. That's in the past, right? We got some new stuff going on that we want to we implement. And there was a change in dynasty from one group. Uh, it was the Hyksos people to Egyptians. So the Hyksos people had come from um, like up towards Canaan in that area and had ruled for a long time in Egypt. But now it was back to the Egyptians. And so um, the, this poor king is motivated by fear, and he uses that to garner support for what he's proposing. The king used fear tactics to convince his people to go along with his plans. He was creating an us-them mentality in his own people so they would rally around his idea and join him in opposing the Israelites. So, 
I'm going to read you a, a, I'm going to read you a quote from Douglas Stewart's commentary, but what I want you to be aware is that this commentary was published in 2006, and he wrote the commentary prior to it being published, so it's been quite a few years ago, before some things that are going on in our political landscape right now. But I want you to listen to the words. These are profound for us. Listen to what he says. To portray his own people as somehow a minority, potentially dominated by the outsider majority, was a clever way to engender popular support for his plan. All oppressive regimes use the threat of some great danger, real or imagined, to justify violations of human rights. If a regime wishes to be given freedom to oppress a given group within a nation, it defines that group as an undermining force, a real danger, and potentially the agent of overthrow of the established order. Sound like anything going on in our culture right now? Brothers and sisters, I don't want us to be naive to the fact that this was, that's what's currently happening in our political landscape today. And as Christians, we have to be aware that we are being included in a group defined as an undermining force, a real danger, and potentially the agents of overthrow of the established order. Or as someone has said, a threat to democracy. It's not true. It's not true. And we have to be aware of it. And so we have to stand up and defend our rights to the Constitution of the United States and not allow them to be taken away. Because once they're gone, we're not getting them back. We have to stand up. We can't sit back anymore and just go, oh, well, someone else is going to take care of that. Someone else will defend our rights. We have to defend our rights. So I don't want us to miss that today. I mean, this was written prior to any of this happening, but it's pretty profound to think that that's how different regimes. And we see that in the regimes of Pol Pot and Stalin and Hitler. We see those same things taking place. I don't want to go there. I don't want to be a part of that. As we continue with affliction then, we see in verses 11 to 14 that they are forced into slavery. Look at those verses with me if you would. So they put uh, slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built um, Pathom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. So they're forced into slavery to, uh, for the Egyptians. They made the bricks and, and mortar used to build two store cities. Um, Pathom and, and Ramses were probably in, northern, in the northern Delta region, close to where they lived in Goshen. So if you look at the map, you'll see, you'll see those two cities that are in Goshen and, um, and Ahau. It's in that northeast part of Egypt. They would have been strategic store cities that probably housed grain for that region, but also military supplies and personnel, since the Egyptians were fearful of an attack from the Asiatic nations to the northeast. And they also had them working the fields, which would have been animals and grain as well. 
The idea behind working them ruthlessly was probably twofold, at least in the king's mind. The first one was like, well, all the weak men or women, they're going to die. We're going to work them so hard, they're just going to die. Like they, they can't handle the labor. And the other part may have been that they were just, uh, the, those that were strong would be too tired or too far away from their wives to procreate. So it's like, hey, we'll just work them so hard that they just want to go home and go to bed, right? Not do anything else. And what began with the new king should not have come as a surprise to the Israelites, especially if they had had that oral tradition of passing down the promises from Abraham all the way down. We saw it last week in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. This is what God promised Abraham. Then the Lord said to them, Know for certain, or said to him, I should say, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, that's Egypt, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. So they know the end. They know what's coming, right? If they're paying attention to this oral tradition that's been passed down from generation to generation, they're like, oh, this shouldn't come as a surprise. Yeah, God said this was going to happen. He told Abraham that. Abraham told Isaac. Isaac told Jacob. And on, on, on down the, uh, the tree it went. So they're like, they should have looked at that second part and gone, oh, Yes, we're going to be oppressed, and we're going to have hard times, but guess what? God is going to accomplish his plan, even through our hardship and suffering. He's going to complete that plan. And so McKay says, knowing that the oppression was as much part of God's plan as their own growth in numbers had been, should have given them strength to wait for the divine resolution, right? They should have known, okay, we don't know how long, well... It's almost been 400 years, right? It's almost done. So our first principle is this today. Suffering is a necessary part of God's plan. That comes as a quote right out of Martin's commentary. The Israelites could trust God to accomplish his plan even through hardship and suffering. And the same is true of us. We can trust God to accomplish his plan even through hardship and suffering. Let me read you this illustration today to see if this is how you're feeling right now. Have you lived long enough to feel a little like the story of a cowboy on the western frontier who came across an Indian lying flat with his ear to the ground? The Indian looked up at the cowboy sitting on his horse and said, Wagon, four horses, two passengers, woman wearing calico gown, heavy man driving, 30 minutes away. The cowboy's jaw dropped as he said, That is so amazing. You can tell all of that just by putting your ear to the ground? No, the Indian replied. They ran over me a half hour ago. (laughs) Do you feel that way today? Do you feel like you just got run over by somebody? Maybe it's a friend, a a spouse, a family member, a co-worker, an employee. They just deliberately ran you over and just left you there with your ear to the ground. Maybe it's circumstances that are are having you feeling flat today. Maybe it's broken health. Maybe you're struggling with your health. Maybe it's bills stacking up. Maybe it's unexpected expenses that are coming in. It seems like every week. Maybe it's increasing debt that you feel like, I'm never going to get on top of this. Maybe it's something else, just some circumstance in life. Maybe it's a loss of a job. I want you to hear words of Martin today from his commentary. Know this. Whatever place of bondage you are in right now, God knows. And whatever place of suffering you feel trapped within, God cares. 
And when you labor to remain faithful to God's leading and remain patient through the adversity, God will do something about it. Aren't those encouraging words today? It doesn't matter where you are, what you're going through, what bondage you're in, what suffering you're experiencing, what oppression you're going through. God knows and he cares and he's going to do something about it. But sometimes we have to wait. Because sometimes there's a learning process that we have to go through in the suffering, in the hardship. So maybe you're ready for this first next step today, and that's to remember that God knows and cares about the bondage and suffering I'm currently experiencing. So I can trust him by faith to bring me through it. That's hard to do in the middle, isn't it? It's not easy when you're there and your ear is to the ground because you just got run over. It's not easy to go, God's going to bring me through this. But I want you to hold on to that truth today. He promises to do that for you. And we can trust him. The Israelites had to trust God by faith as they experienced oppression at the hands of the Egyptians. They watched him do the miraculous through the, uh, through the hard and ruthless work. The king's plan didn't work. The harder they worked the Israelites and the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. And I can only imagine what the new king thought as he sat in his private room. After years of oppressing the Israelites, how is it that these slaves are not decreasing in number but increasing instead? What is going on here? I bet you he was confused. And the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, which caused them to work them even harder. They're like, we're scared of them now. So we really need to work them hard. We need to kill off some of these people. They made the Israelites' lives bitter by using them ruthlessly. And so the king, because this plan didn't work, had to regroup and look for another way to decrease the population of the Israelites through infanticide, infanticide I should say. So the killing of babies. So he, does it, he tries to do it first secretly, and then he does it openly. Secretly, we see in verses 15 to 21. Look at that with me, if you would. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you not done this? Or why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because because the midwives feared God... He gave them families of their own. Wow. So, first we see this request. The king called in the Hebrew midwives. Uh, Shifra, uh, her, her name means fair, brightness, and beauty. And Pua, her name means splendid. And he asks them to kill the Hebrew boys right after they were born, but to let the Hebrew girls live. The king knew that killing the boys would eventually reduce the fighting force of the Israelites. Remember what his fear was? He's like, if they keep getting numerous and the enemy comes, and they're going to join our enemy, and they're going to fight against us. That was his fear. So he was like, if I just take care of all the boys, they won't have a fighting force. And then the girls, he's, he's like, perhaps, this is what he's thinking, because Scripture doesn't tell us, but perhaps he's thinking, well, the girls, we'll just absorb them into the Egyptian culture. We'll just have them marry our guys, Right? 
then they'll be, they don't have to worry. And so the hope was that if the midwives killed the boys before they made a noise, so before that child cried, that it would be considered a stillbirth, allowing his plan to remain a secret. He didn't want people to know what he was asking them to do. I mean, that's horrible. And so he was banking on the fact that most people viewed the king or Pharaoh as a god and would therefore not defy his request or command. But what we see here is this refusal. This is the first instance of uh, civil disobedience in Scripture. The midwives feared God, who was higher and more powerful than the king. They stood up for what was right according to God's law instead of the king's command. Their civil disobedience was prompted by their fear of God more than a humanitarian concern for the Hebrew boys. They obviously had that too, but their greater fear was of God. Scripture is clear that as Christians, we are to obey those in authority over us, whether they're Christians or not. We see that in Matthew chapter 20, verses 21 to 25, Romans chapter 13, that whole chapter, and then 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. But Scripture also teaches that our obedience must not violate our conscience or the laws of God. Romans chapter 13, verse 5 tells us this, Therefore, if it, therefore it is... Ne- if it is I'll read it right. Therefore... It is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. And then Acts chapter 5, verse 20, verses 27 to 29 tell us this. It's a story about the apostles. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. They're talking about Jesus' name. He said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. So we have, we have to pray and discern if there's something that we need to do for civil disobedience or not obeying someone in authority over us. It takes, it takes prayer and it takes discernment. We just can't go, oh, well, God's words, you know, and go out there and just be silly about things. These two midwives risked their lives to be faithful to God instead of the king. They probably knew that the consequences of disobeying the king would mean death. They were defying his direct order. And perhaps it didn't take too long for the king to realize that his command was being ignored, so he called the two women in again, and he reprimanded them. He wanted to know why they let the Hebrew boys live, and the midwife's defense was that, uh, that the Hebrew women were more vigorous than the Egyptian women and gave birth before the midwives arrived. Now, Douglas Stewart in his commentary has a perhaps for us. Again, this isn't in Scripture, but perhaps this is what was taking place. Um, he says this, The final part of, ver- of the verse, they give birth before the midwives arrive, <clears throat> could thus be perfectly true, perhaps in part because of a purposely slow arrival of the midwives as part of a quiet, widespread plot among Israelites to fool the Egyptians. Maybe that's what these midwives were doing. They were saying, oh, we're just going to, we'll be right there, right? We're coming, we'll be right there. And they just kind of waited. We don't know. But anyhow, the king must have accepted their defense because he doesn't, say anything to them in scripture that we see he doesn't punish them and the command from the king must have been hard for the midwives to deal with but they trusted god to accomplish his plan even through hardship and suffering their faithfulness to god was rewarded 
we see the reward here. The Israelites were rewarded with even more descendants. They just kept growing and expanding. And God was kind to the midwives and gave them families of their own. Now, it's probable that midwives in the ancient Near East were women who were unable to have children of their own, that they were barren. And the reason we, I think that is because the demands of a midwife to be available at a moment's notice, day or night, would not have been really conducive to a mother with children of her own at home. And so the midwives are not, were now part of the increase of the Israelite community. Just think about that. Perhaps they were barren up to this point. Now they are, their wombs are open and they're fruitful, and they are now you know, increasing the number of the Israelites. Our second principle today comes, again, from Martin's commentary, that God demands faithfulness of those who want his blessing. We have to be faithful to God and his commands given to us through his word, the Bible. But you know what happens? Fear keeps many of us Christians from actively addressing sin in our culture. We're afraid to stand up for the unborn children because of how we'll be labeled. We shy away from confronting false teaching in the church because, well, we just don't want to hurt people's feelings. We would never think of participating in civil disobedience for fear of being, quote-unquote, canceled. We don't speak up when prayer in the Bible or removed from our educational institutions and government facilities. Well, because they're watching, right? They know what's happening. They know what we're saying behind closed doors. The see you at the poll events at our public schools are scarcely attended by our children, perhaps because parents are not encouraging them to participate. They don't want their children to be persecuted or bullied at school. And the examples of this could just go on and on and on. We're afraid that we might lose our job if we, if we stand up or say something. You see, we fear man instead of God. When Jesus was preparing his disciples for persecution, he told them, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We should fear God more than man. Luke, writing in chapter 9, verses 23 to 26, tells us this. Then he said to them, that's Jesus speaking to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it if a man, uh, for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. We can't be ashamed of Jesus and his word. We have to stand up for it to do what's right. And that's time for us to stand up as Christians and be faithful to God instead of letting uh, fretting over the things he may ask us to sacrifice to be faithful to him. What blessings have we missed because we have been not been faithful to the Lord and his word? Maybe you're ready to take that second step today, and that's to stop fretting over the things God has asked me to sacrifice in order to be faithful to him. You know, we can trust God to accomplish his plan even through hardship and suffering. The midwives were faithful to the Lord and were blessed with children of their own. And out of desperation, then, the king made his secret plan public. Look at verse 22. 
Then Pharaoh gave this order to all the people, all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but every girl, uh, let every girl live. So he's talking about the Hebrew children there. He ordered all the Egyptians to take every boy born and throw them into the Nile. And he also ordered that every Hebrew girl be allowed to live. McKay says this, If this policy had been kept up for any length of time, it's impossible to explain the number of Israelite males at the Exodus. It may only have been sporadically enforced, and that in limited areas of the land. So even this final publicly saying to his people, you need to go do this, probably a vast majority of them are like, there is no way. We're not going to do that. Even though the Nile was considered one of their gods, he could have, and the king could have said, hey, throwing it into the river, you're like worshiping and sacrificing to the Nile God. He'll bless you, right? He could have done all kinds of crazy stuff. But we realized that that plan failed too because God's plan cannot be thwarted. That's our third principle today. We know that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign, and eternal. So no matter what plan the king tried to dream up, God knew about it and had the power and right to override it because he had a long-term plan that needed to be accomplished. His long-term plan was to have the Israelites return to the land of Canaan so that in the future his son Jesus could be born in Bethlehem, live in Nazareth, teach in the region of Galilee, and then give his life on the cross on the cross for the sin of all humanity. That was the greater purpose and plan. An Egyptian king was not going to thwart his plan. God's plan for your life cannot be thwarted. God's plan for our church cannot be thwarted. And so we can claim this third prince or this third next step today that we can trust in God's perfect plan for me and our church. So, as we review, do you, re- do, yeah, do, you, do you need to remember that God knows and cares about the bondage and suffering that you're currently experiencing so you can trust him by faith to bring you through it? Is it time to stop fretting over the things God's asked you to sacrifice in order to be faithful to him? Do you need to trust in God's perfect plan for you? As a body of believers, we need to remember that God knows and cares about the suffering we are currently experiencing as a church so we can trust him by faith to bring us through. Aren't you glad for that? As a body, we do not need to fret over the things God is asking us to sacrifice in order to be faithful to him. And then we can trust in God's perfect plan for us. In the fall of 1943, German soldiers began rounding up Jews in Italy, and deporting them by the thousands to concentration camps. Simultaneously, a mysterious and deadly disease called Syndrome K swept through the city of Rome, causing dozens of patients to be admitted to the Fata Benefratilli Hospital. The details of the disease are sketchy, but the symptoms include persistent coughing, paralysis, and death. The disease was said to be highly contagious. But Syndrome K was different. There was no mention of it in medical textbooks, and outside of the hospital staff, nobody had heard of it before. It sounded similar to, to tuberculosis, a terribly frightening disease at that time. When the German soldiers went to raid the hospital, the doctors explained the disease to the soldiers and what lay behind the closed doors. None of them dared to go in. 
And that's how at least 100 Jews who were taking refuge at the hospital escaped death. Syndrome K was a made-up disease. The disease was created by Giovanni Borromeo, the hospital's head physician, to, Jews, uh, to save Jews and anti-fascists who sought refuge there. Borromeo began providing Jews a safe haven in the hospital from 1938, the year Italy introduced anti-Semitic laws. In October of 1943, the Nazis raided a Jewish ghetto in Rome. Many Jews fled to, to Fata Benefratelli, where Borromeo admitted them as quote-unquote patients. The refugees were diagnosed with a new fatal disease, Syndrome K, in order to identify them from the current patients or actual patients. When the Nazis came to visit, patients were instructed to cough a lot whenever soldiers passed by their door. The ruse worked. The Nazis thought it was cancer or tuberculosis, and they fled like rabbits, said Dr. Vittorio Sacerdoti during an interview with BBC in 2004, 60 years after the event. How many lives Syndrome K actually saved is hard to tell, but accounts vary from two dozen to over a hundred. After the war, Borromeo was honored by the Italian government by awarding the Order of Merit and the Silver Medal of Valor. He died in 1961 at his own hospital. He was posthumously recognized as a quote-unquote righteous among the nations by the Israeli government. You know, so sometimes we have to do hard things, right? Sometimes we have to make sacrifices in order to be obedient to God. We see that first reference to civil disobedience by these two women. And we're going to see it more uh, throughout Scripture. Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We see it again with the apostles throughout the New Testament. We have to stand up for what's right. And we have to trust the Lord to allow us to thrive through affliction. And so as the worship team comes and as the ushers prepare to take up the tithes and offerings and the communication cards, would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. It's so powerful. Thank you that we can just learn so much from it and be challenged and, and, and encouraged uh, to be obedient to you. I pray that, that we would today, that we would do what you're calling us to do and that we would trust you through the midst of it. We just commit ourselves to you now, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.